Well, I trust that you all had a, a wonderful uh, time uh, on Friday, just remembering the birth of Jesus with your uh, friends and, and family members. And uh, I'm sure this morning you got uh, a wonderful uh, wake-up call uh, as you might have stepped outside for the first time uh, and seen what happens uh, when there is fog and freezing temperatures uh, outside. And uh, this is about the, the iciest I have uh, seen it in our four years here uh, in Idaho, but uh, always uh, something new, right? Uh, well, if you have your, uh, your Bibles, you can open up with me uh, to John uh, chapter uh, 7. And we will continue uh, in uh, our study of John's gospel. And as you're turning there, uh, it, uh, it is commonplace uh, in our society uh, to, uh, at times, make uh, assessments or judgments of a person based upon where they went uh, to school. Uh, and uh, in the past, there were uh, many colleges and, and universities that that looked down uh, upon uh, any high school student uh, who uh, attended uh, homeschool. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, at times, uh, in another era, difficult for, for homeschool students uh, to get into uh, really uh, good colleges. But uh, what happened over time is that uh, those homeschool students, colleges began to, to notice, they seemed to be doing better uh, in adjusting to college life and, and uh, college uh, academics, uh, they seem to be more prepared uh, than many of those students who, who attended and graduated from public school. It's also common to, uh, to judge a potential employee uh, based upon where he or she uh, went to school. Right? Boise State is a, is a wonderful school, uh, but if a Boise State graduate uh, is applying for the same job uh, as a Harvard graduate, uh, the, the, employ, the employer might make uh, an assessment there and say, well, um, maybe I'll go with the, the Harvard graduate, unless that employer is a, a Boise State grad, and then, uh, then it works in a different way. Uh, but, but this, uh, this uh, disposition to make judgments based upon an educational pedigree of an individual uh, that, that temptation is not anything that is new. Uh, what we're going to see here in, in John chapter 7 is uh, the topic of debate uh, in our verses this morning is going to be really the education of Jesus. Where did he go to school? And as we've already looked at the last couple of weeks uh, in, uh, in John chapter 7, uh, at the beginning of the chapter we saw this conversation that took place between Jesus and his half-brothers. Uh, and his half-brothers were encouraging him uh, to go up to uh, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, go up to Jerusalem and seize this opportunity to increase your celebrity status. Uh, why don't you, you go and make use of this time and, and do some, some good publicity. Uh, well, uh, Jesus says, no, I, I need to go up to the feast at the right time, according to the Father's will. Uh, and uh, after that, Last week, we studied and looked at the discussion that was happening at uh, the feast uh, before Jesus arrived there. That they were asking, who is Jesus? And there was a, a quiet debate taking place among the people of who is, uh, who, who is Jesus? What, what should we make of this man and his ministry? Uh, and that, that was uh, taking place uh, over the, the first several days of the feast. Uh, and what we're going to see here in, in John chapter 7 is, is the people at the feast here in Jerusalem are like people asking questions in the dark. 
trying to figure out who Jesus is. Uh, They're not quite sure what to make of him. So they're asking some of the basic questions, and sometimes silly questions, but uh, they're saying, who who is he, and and, uh, where did he come from? Uh, and wh- where does he, where was he educated? Where, where does his teaching come from? Uh, and that's what we're going to see uh, both today and, uh, and over the course of the next couple of weeks. These questions that are being asked about Jesus uh, by the people there in Jerusalem who are gathered uh, together. But what I'd like to do this morning uh, is look with you uh, at verses 14 through 18. Okay? Uh, And we're entering into a new uh, portion in John chapter 7, uh, where 1 through 13 take place kind of at the beginning of the feast or prior to the feast. Now we're entering into the middle of the feast. And then when we get to uh, verse 37, uh, we're going to be looking at the last day of the feast. So what we're going to see here is right in the middle of the feast. And verse 14 says uh, that about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning, when he has never studied? And so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So as we see in this passage, Jesus has come up to the feast, uh, and his goal isn't necessarily privacy. Uh, His goal is just to do the will of God the Father. Uh, because he's there teaching in the temple, which is not a private event. Uh, he's teaching there in the temple grounds. Uh, and uh, what's amazing is the focus of this chapter is not about what Jesus was teaching in the temple grounds. And that would really be my question. Of what was he saying? I, I want to hear uh, what the topic was uh, on that day. Uh, but the focus of this chapter is not about what Jesus was teaching, but it's more about the objections Uh, or the questions that the people there at the feast have uh, about Jesus, or the objections that they have against him. Uh, And again, what we're going to see this morning is really what, one of their objections is that he had no formal education, right? So how can he be a teacher without having been taught? Uh, But as we're going to study these verses, Jesus is going to defend his teaching, and at the same time, he's going to teach us how we should understand his teaching. Uh, and how we are to apply it to our own lives. Uh, and as Jesus interacts with the crowd at the temple during the Feast of Booths, uh, we're going to see, or we can make note of four features uh, of Jesus' teaching. Okay, and the first one can be found uh, in verses 14 and 15. Namely, that Jesus' teaching will be questioned by unbelievers. Jesus' teaching will be questioned by unbelievers. And again, as we saw the first statement here in our passage about the middle of the feast, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is day number four of this eight-week or eight-day feast. Uh, it's just kind of a, a vague, ambiguous term to mean at some point uh, in the middle. Uh, and uh, Jesus is there in the temple complex. So he wasn't necessarily in the temple himself, but there's a large temple grounds, and he, he may have been one of the, the courts uh, or the, the porticos there in the temple grounds. And, and he began to teach, and it probably didn't take very long 
for a crowd to gather around him. Once word spread that he was there and he was teaching in the temple, I would imagine that that thousands of people would have come to hear him. Uh, And uh, what's also interesting to think about is that because this is one of those Jewish feasts when all of the the Jewish men were required to be in Jerusalem, uh, there are probably many, many people here in Jerusalem listening to Jesus teach for the very first time. They may have heard about all of the things that he was doing, but they may have never heard him actually speak or seen him in person, and they are seeing and hearing him for the very first time. Now, Matthew chapter 7 Verses 28 and 29, after Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, this is what the people noted. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So as they're hearing Jesus teach, like, man, there's something unique and different about this guy. He teaches as if he himself has authority rather than the way that the scribes taught. And, and something very similar is going to be said here in verse 15, right? Uh, that the Jews, meaning both the Jewish leaders and the people uh, among the, the crowd, uh, were marveling. They were astonished at the things that he was proclaiming to them. And, and then they asked this question. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, the the literal Greek here, uh, the question is uh, a little bit more uh, hostile uh, and derogatory. They say, well, how is it that this one, uh, how is it that this one knows his letters without having learned? Right? And and what they're, they're using that derogatory term, but the idea wasn't that They're like, how does Jesus know how to read and write? That's not what they're saying. Because at that point in time, most Jewish men could read and write, and and literacy was a a common part of their culture. But what they're they're really asking is, how is it that this man is able to, to reason and argue and debate in the same way that the rabbis and the other religious leaders are? Because he was never formally educated, Right? How was he able to, to, to stand on his own against these very highly educated individuals when he has never gone to school, so to speak? And it was a, a common practice at that point in time uh, for rabbis to teach according to whatever school that they went to, uh, and that they would reason and argue. In essence, they would uh, proclaim uh, the thoughts and the ideas of their school and of their teachers, right? Uh, and having a, a famous teacher... Uh, in the ancient world, would immediately open up doors uh, for you uh, and lead you to being accepted as a teacher uh, and having that pedigree. Because in, in, to a certain extent, if you, were, if you had a, a very well-known and famous teacher, uh, his pedigree was kind of transferred to you, so to speak. Uh, you can, uh, the, the Greek philosophers, uh, there's a kind of a, a long line uh, of Greek philosophers who passed on their learning from one to another. You probably have, have heard of these names, but may not have understood that they're all connected with one another. So Socrates, uh, the Greek philosopher, was the one who taught Plato. Uh, and Plato, in turn, taught Aristotle. And then Aristotle taught some guy, young, some young man named Alexander the Great. Uh, who ended up conquering most of the known world uh, at that point in time. Uh, and so there was this, this string of, uh, of teachers and students that passed on a pedigree in learning. Uh, and this is also something that was prized uh, in the, the Jewish world as well. Uh, the Apostle Paul studied under the great Rabbi Gamaliel, 
Uh, and he made a point of mentioning this when he's facing a hostile crowd uh, in Acts chapter 22. He's there in Jerusalem, uh, and, and there's an angry mob who wants to, to have him arrested and killed. Uh, and Paul stands up and speaks uh, in Hebrew to them, and that kind of quiets them down. And he says this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, speaking of Jerusalem. He says, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So, so Paul points to his own educational pedigree, uh, and, and that immediately gave him an audience uh, with the people that he was speaking to. But here's what is unique about Jesus. He has no famous human teacher that mentored him. And he didn't go to one of the, the schools for rabbis in Jerusalem. So the question is, how does he have all of this knowledge? How is he proclaiming to us all of this wisdom? And as we, as we see this scene, we should notice that it is layered with irony. Because here in this scene, you have men thinking and proclaiming that God himself is uneducated. Now, there's a deep irony here. That is the very height of arrogance and of ignorance. To think that, that we are more educated than Christ. But we can, we can repeat that same sin today both as a believer or as an unbeliever. When we dismiss or question the authority and the wisdom of Jesus. See, an unbeliever may doubt Jesus' claims to be God. They say, maybe I'm, I'm not convinced about that. But a believer may be tempted to question the wisdom of Jesus' teaching in smaller things. An unbeliever may doubt that Jesus performed miracles. Uh, and a believer may doubt that they need to confess sin. Or that, that they need to go and reconcile with the one whom they have offended. Or maybe I need to, to address this, this habit in my life. We as believers, we're, we're tempted to doubt the wisdom and the authority of Jesus in those areas. And unbelievers are, are tempted to doubt who Jesus is in total. But unbelief will lead us to question the authority of Jesus' teaching. And unbelief is always looking for things to question and reasons to doubt. So we must see it in our own lives for what it really is. Uh, and be aware of it as it creeps into our hearts. And we must battle against such temptations, especially in light of the next uh, feature of Jesus' teaching. What we're going to see uh, in, in our second feature in verse 16, is that Jesus' teaching has God as its source. If you look with me again uh, at that verse, as the, they're, they're asking the question of, how, well, how is it that he, that he can know all of these things having never studied or been taught? And Jesus answers that question. And he says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Uh, and so, the, again, in essence, the people are coming and asking, Jesus, what school in Jerusalem did you go to? And he says, well, you're not going to be able to find the school that I went to. Right? You're not going to be able to locate it here in Jerusalem because uh, Jesus uh, was not taught by the school or tradition of men. He, he was taught 
uh, and instructed by God. His teaching is God's teaching. And Jesus makes it clear that he was not self-taught, nor was he rabbi-taught, but his teaching comes directly from God the Father. Uh, And uh, Jesus emphasizes that he is one who was sent into this world by God, that he came uh, with a mission. He was sent with a purpose uh, to teach and proclaim uh, exactly what God has told him to proclaim. Uh, He was sent to do exactly what God has called and told him to do. Uh, And one commentator puts it this way, the importance of what Jesus says here is that had he said that he was self-taught or that he needed no teacher or the like, he would have been discredited immediately because the Jews uh, did not prioritize or uh, accept originality. If you were coming up with your own ideas, you were not going to be accepted uh, in Jewish culture. Uh, And the rabbinic uh, method of debate was to cite previous teachers, previous rabbis, basically for all of your really important ideas. Uh, you had to, to go and appeal to someone else. Well, I argue this because Rabbi Gamaliel said this. Uh, but Jesus says, no, I say this because God is the authority. And this is what he has said. This is what he has commanded for me to speak. And Jesus is claiming that his teaching is the teaching of God. And now in one sense, uh, that is not a unique claim. And because in, in, in one sense, it's also true of every single prophet in the Old Testament, right? Uh, there, there's a phrase used over and over again in the Old Testament prophets. Uh, it is, thus says the Lord. A very familiar phrase uh, and a very basic uh, search in Bible study software will, will bring up about 417 occasions just in the Old Testament where that phrase uh, is used by the prophets to announce this is a message from God. Uh, it's a, uh, and that, again, that, that saying is so familiar. When I, when I first became a believer, uh, I, I was reading the, the King James uh, version of the, the Bible. Uh, and uh, the, the, the King James translation of that little phrase uh, is, thus saith the Lord. Uh, and, and I became so familiar with that. I was reading and uh, just eating up my, my Bible as a new believer that it, it's funny now when I think in the privacy of my own mind, that's what I say to myself. Thus saith the Lord. I don't usually say thus says the Lord. But it's amazing the power of that little phrase introducing a message from God. Uh, and so while every Old Testament prophet w- would speak in that way proclaiming thus saith the Lord... That is not how Jesus teaches, is it? Right? Jesus doesn't say, I have a message from God, here's what he says. Jesus says, but I say to you. Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you the truth. He proclaims from himself the message that he has been given to God. He doesn't appeal to God. He just says, this is God's word. And he speaks. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 puts it this way. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. See, God used to speak through prophets. Now He speaks through Christ, His Son. 
And when we hear Jesus teach, we hear the very teaching of God. And the Word of God works to transform the human heart. So here we see the crowds marveling at the wisdom and the teaching of Jesus. Right? They, they had never uh, heard such things. And they were even more amazed to find out that this teacher that they are marveling at, he's never been taught himself. What's also very interesting is that something similar is said of the apostles in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. After they had uh, been teaching and giving testimony before the Sanhedrin, the same group of men who had killed Jesus, the apostles giving testimony, and the Sanhedrin noticed this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, that, that, that's the impact that the teaching of Christ has upon the human heart. It transforms us. Right? Those who hear and receive His Word are transformed into His image and likeness. And even those without any educational pedigree can become more wise than those who have a whole lot of schooling. But can that be said of us? Right? Do we have wisdom beyond our earthly education because we have spent time with Christ in His Word? But can it be said that we have a, a, a wisdom and a knowledge uh, about us because we have spent time in God's Word and we submit to His Word. The Bible will transform your heart and mind if you receive it in faith as the Word of God. I love Psalm 19, verses 7-11. through 11. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them there is great reward." Oh, that we would treasure God's Word in that way, that we would allow it to transform our hearts and minds, that we would value it more than gold and silver. And although God is the source of Jesus' teaching, there is one other thing that is needed if the teaching of Christ is going to make an impact upon our life. If, if what I just read from Psalm 19, if it's going to, to be true in our own lives, there's one other ingredient to this recipe. Uh, there's one other component that must be true. It's found in verse 17. You could say it this way, that Jesus' teaching is only understood in faith. Verse 17 says this, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Right, so Jesus introduces the source of his teaching. He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from God. It comes from the one who sent me. 
Then Jesus gives this conditional statement, an if-then, right? He says, if this is true, then this is also going to be the case. Let's look and put this together. He says, if anyone wishes or wills to do the will of God, right? If this is true about a person, if you have a desire to do what God wants you to do, then there is going to be a corresponding result that will accompany this desire to do God's will. Here's the second part of the clause. If anyone wishes to do the will of God, then he will know the source of Jesus' teaching. If you have a desire to do what God is calling you to do, you will know whether or not Jesus' teaching truly comes from God or whether it just comes from Jesus. If Jesus is just making it up as he goes along, we would know that. And what Jesus is saying here would have thrown a wrench into the entire uh, religious uh, schooling system of the Jewish people. Uh, Because the whole education system was predicated upon debate. Again, of rabbis arguing and, and saying, well, no, I think this interpretation is true. And let me cite all my sources and teachers. And now I think this interpretation is true. And let me sort, uh, name all of my uh, authorities that would agree with me. But Jesus eliminates the debate process. And, and he says, no, this is not debatable. You will know whether or not his teaching is true based upon whether or not you are willing to do what God is calling you to do. And yet, what does that even mean, right? Well, what does it mean to, to do uh, the will of God? How can, I, how can I will to do God's will? Right? Well, if you just turn back John chapter 6, it's a wonderful question that is asked uh, by the crowds uh, after Jesus uh, fed them. And the next day, They're interacting with Jesus. And if you look with me, John chapter 6, verse 28. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? They're saying, Jesus, tell us what to do. What what is it that God expects of us? And Jesus just gives them uh, a singular answer. They say, hey, Jesus, give us an itemized list of all the things that we need to do. And Jesus says, there's just one thing. Verse 29. He answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The people wanted a a to-do list that they could check off. And Jesus says, no, you just need to believe in the one whom God sent, which is Jesus himself. That is what is proclaimed here. Jesus is building upon what he has already taught to the crowds and to his disciples. But additionally, you might ask, well, but who can do the will of God if we are all naturally sinners, right? The Bible says that we are all uh, sinners by by nature and by choice. We have all rebelled against the God who has created us, who's given us life and breath and everything, and, and our rebellion against Him separates us from Him. And again, also in John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So in essence, what is being said is that faith is a prerequisite to understanding who Jesus is. Uh, And the prerequisite to faith is God the Father working in your heart. 
changing you, transforming you, and drawing you to himself through faith in Christ. And if God has been working in your heart, there will be a willingness to submit to God's will. There will be a willingness, a desire to do whatever God is calling you to do. And Jesus is saying that is the prerequisite for understanding his teaching. If you have no desire to submit to God's will, Jesus will not make sense to you. That's what he's saying. Back when I was in elementary school, uh, in the summer, we, my uh, sister and uh, my friends and I, we would go to a, a large uh, public pool uh, in our community. And I, we did swimming lessons there over the course of, of several summers. And I think I was either in fourth or, or fifth grade. And I kind of worked my way up so I could go to the really deep pool where all the cool kids were. Uh, and at the deep pool, uh, there were uh, these two diving boards uh, that were about four feet high. And my friends and I, we were really enjoying uh, jumping off of those into the, into the water. Uh, but then in between uh, the, these two uh, shorter diving boards, there was another diving board. And it wasn't four feet tall. It was probably 10 or 12 feet tall. That was the high dive, right? And I, I thought I had finally mustered up the courage to climb onto the high dive and jump off. And I, I, I went up the ladder, slowly made my way to the, to the wobbly edge uh, of the, the diving board, and I, and I looked down, and when you're standing on the side of the pool and you're looking up at the high dive, it just looks like it's 10 to 12 feet high, right? It doesn't look as high, but when you're up on top of the diving board and it's wobbling— and you're looking down, you're not just looking down to the surface of the water, you're looking down to the very bottom of the swimming pool. So it looks like you are a lot higher up than you, than you actually are. Uh, and so I think that the pool itself was probably 15 or 20 feet deep because it was used for diving. Uh, and so I'm suddenly up there, and it looks like I'm 25 feet in the air. Uh, and I just, I freeze. Uh, I'm, I'm terrified. Right? And uh, I slowly do one of these, you know, uh, slowly working my way backwards. And then I, I turn around and I uh, take the climb of shame back down the ladder. Uh, because I, I was afraid to make that leap. Right? I, I, I wasn't willing to accept the consequences of stepping off that diving board. Right? You step off, stuff's going to happen. Uh, and, and when you're in elementary school, you don't know what that stuff is. You're like, oh, am I going to die? Uh, but the same is also true about the teachings of Christ. Right? That his teaching will not make sense unless you are willing to take that leap of faith uh, and accept all of the consequences of all that he has taught and all that he has claimed to be. Right? Unless you are first willing to take that step of faith and accept who Jesus is, and unless you are first willing to do the will of God, nothing else is going to make sense. You're not going to be willing to do anything else. Much like in Scripture, the story of the rich young ruler. All right, you're probably familiar with that story. Young man comes up to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus 
gives him some of the, the Ten Commandments, trying to, to help this young man see his sinfulness. And the young man just says, oh, I've done all of that. What else should I do? And Jesus is like, okay, let me put my finger right where your heart is. And he tells this young man, all right, go and sell everything that you have and come and follow me. And the young man went away very sad because he had much possessions. And, and those possessions had pulled his heart away from Christ. Right? That young man was up on the diving board. And when he realized all that Jesus was commanding him and calling him to do, he says, I don't think this is for me. I need to go back. He went away grieved. a lengthy quote here from, from D.A. Carson. I love this quote. He says, regarding this verse, the point is not that a seeker must attain a certain God-approved level of ethical achievement before venturing an assessment as to whether or not Jesus' teaching comes from God, but that a seeker must be fundamentally committed to doing God's will. Says this is a faith commitment that Jesus is calling us to here. Right? Are you willing to submit your life to God? Carson continues. He says, if you abide by this faith commitment, God then fills the seeker's horizon. And God's will is not simply to be thought about and assessed as if God is the object that we may politely examine, dissect, uh, discuss and picking and choosing what we like of him. The faith commitment envisaged here, this moral choice is properly basic and renders impossible any attitude that sets us up as judges of God's ways. This means that the truth is self-authenticating, not with vicious circularity, as if no meshing points uh, with the external examinable world, but in the sense that this, you say you might argue this, of like, well, if I, have to if I have to believe and accept who Jesus is, and then it'll make sense, isn't that a circular argument, right? He says, well, it, it's not a circular argument because uh, uh, for this reason. He says, in the sense that finite and fallen human beings cannot set themselves up on some sure ground outside the truth and thus gain the vantage from which they may assess it. Because divine revelation can only be assessed, as it were, from the inside. From that perspective, the person who chooses to do God's will discovers that Jesus' teaching articulates it and that Jesus does not speak on his own word but as the word of God. So I'll, I'll kind of make this a little bit uh, simpler. No, that was a long quote. Uh, the pool of knowledge and information about Jesus only makes sense if you jump in. That's what he's saying. You have to, to jump in and accept all of the consequences of now uh, submitting your life to God. Then everything makes sense. But without that faith, nothing else is, is going to, uh, to be comprehensible. And what's interesting here in this discussion, that, that initially the, the point of emphasis by the crowd is, hey, can we really accept this guy's teaching? Right? 
But Jesus repositions the issue and says, no, are you really willing to submit your life to God? The issue is not, can you accept Jesus' teaching? We must accept it. But the, the bigger question is, are we willing to submit to God? Leon Morris, uh, one of the uh, pastors I've been reading through the Gospel of John, he says, uh, Jesus' hearers had raised the question of his competence as a teacher, but Jesus raises the question of their competence as hearers. Right, Jesus, Jesus turns the, the tables uh, and says, hey, are you really willing to submit to God? The, the fourth feature that we see in verse 18 is that Jesus' teaching seeks to glorify God. He says this in verse 18. It says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Right, in this verse, Jesus is presenting truths. He, he's giving us uh, these uh, maxims, the, these statements that are going to describe anyone who is a faithful ambassador, anyone who has been sent to represent someone else, these things are going to be true. But, but the bigger point here is that Jesus can be trusted. And why is it that he can be trusted? Because he's not in this for himself. He, he's teaching, he's proclaiming, he's ministering for the glory of God. Right? Uh, anyone who seeks glory for himself, Jesus is in essence saying that person is untrustworthy because his motives will taint his message. Uh, that his own desires are going to, to, to mix uh, and, and mess with the message that has been given to him. Again, uh, D.A. Carson says, Jesus is as trustworthy as his motives are unmixed. So God the Father has sent Jesus into the world, and Jesus only does what the Father has called him to do, and he only says what the Father has called him to say. Jesus is all about the will of God. And, and this is to be contrasted with those who would do their own thing. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses writes about Jesus, speaking of him as the prophet who is to come. But in that same chapter, false prophets are also compared to this prophet who is to come. Moses says, hey, th there's a prophet to come. You must listen to him. But any false prophet who comes and, and claims to speak a word in the name of God, when they have been given no word from God, the punishment for that in the Old Testament was death. You would, you would condemn someone to death if they proclaimed falsely about God. And in such situations, that false prophet is seeking his own glory. Deuteronomy 18 says that they speak presumptuously. And there is no honesty or truth in him, and he's full of unrighteousness. So some of you may, may have heard about this when it, when it happened, but back in, in April... So during the, the height of uh, COVID, as uh, the death toll is steadily increasing in, in New York and other places, uh, there's a, a televangelist named Kenneth Copeland, kind of, kind of in, along the lines of uh, the health and wealth and prosperity uh, gospel. And, and on a, a live stream service uh, that got a, a lot of uh, mocking later on, even by the, the secular news, uh, th this man who claims to speak for God, he rebuked COVID back in April. Uh, and, and he, he uh, 
he said, in the, in the name of Jesus, you know, I'm going to destroy you. May a wind come. And, and he, in essence, kind of saying that heat will destroy COVID. And so he's, he's bringing the heat to kill COVID. And it was going to be done with back in April, right? Part of me really wishes that had worked, but uh, it did not. But this is, this is where it becomes very, very obvious that this man speaks not from God, but for himself. He speaks for his own glory. And again, in, in that chapter, Deuteronomy 18, it says this, And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When he says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. And the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of him. You know, false prophets make themselves known by what they teach it doesn't come to pass Uh, and so this is to be contrasted with with christ jesus never spoke presumptuously he never sought glory for himself he always sought the glory of the father and anyone who seeks their own glory uh, is never going to comprehend and understand jesus that's why why Jesus was, was so confusing to the Jewish leaders because everything that they taught was about themselves for their own name, for their own glory. But verse 18 is piercing because Jesus just presents these principles, right? Th- these maxims of this is what is true. If we are constantly looking out for ourselves, if you're constantly looking out for your good, for your glory, Jesus would say, you are not a trustworthy ambassador. We have to understand that in the same way that Christ has been sent by God the Father, we have been sent by Jesus himself. We are sent ones also. And as Jesus speaks about what it looks like to be a faithful sent one, this verse also needs to be applicable to us. If you seek to glorify God, there is no unrighteousness in you. But if you seek to glorify yourself, you're full of unrighteousness. Think about it in this way. How would your life, how would your relationships change if you began to live as Christ lived, not focused upon your own will, your own desires, your own glory. What would happen if you lived for the glory of God, truly and genuinely? How would that impact all of your relationships? I would venture to say that your your outbursts of anger would probably decrease, right? Because it's not about what you want, it's about what God wants. Your, Your yielding to temptations would slowly abate. Your words would build up rather than tear down. You would labor to give to others rather than just accumulating for yourself. You would confess sin and resolve conflict rather than letting conflict fester and separate you from others. And there is an endless list that can be found in the New Testament of what would start to happen if you lived for the glory of God. If, if you understood what verse 18 was saying and then just ask those basic questions. Am I speaking? Am I living for my glory or for the glory of God? Life-altering. 
And, and some of you might be saying, now wait, Pastor Thomas, can't we just go back to talking about what Jesus was teaching? Right? That was better. But, but you notice, Jesus never leaves his teaching as a hypothetical, theoretical, pie-in-the-sky truth. He says, no, let, let's get down to what's most important. He does this in the very, they're coming and saying to Jesus, how can we trust your teaching? And he says, are you willing to submit to God? Are you willing to follow God? That's what's most important. If you're not willing to do that, you don't need to worry about Jesus's educational pedigree because it's not going to make sense to you unless you answer that first question. All right. Uh, Unless you answer that first question of am I willing to do the will of God? Is that what I want? The bigger question here. And Jesus brings that to our heart. And he brings that to bear on what we are called and commanded to do. And I would point once more to that verse that I mentioned in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the, the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. My prayer is is that the teaching of Jesus would make such an impact upon us that as we live our lives, people would recognize that we have been with Jesus. That our children would see that. That our neighbors would see that. That our siblings would see that. That we have been transformed by the teaching of Jesus. It's not just theoretical. It's not just words on a page. But it has transformed our hearts and our lives. And we are no longer living for ourselves. But we live for Him. To glorify Him praise him to worship him to point others to him right that's my prayer that people would recognize that we have been with jesus amen